0: Howdy, everyone. I've been out of here for a little bit over the last couple of weeks and now back. I've been on a bunch of road trips. Oh, yeah. I know, it's nice that I work more than one day a week and, you know, in the summer I got to come now. but So I've been on these road trips, right? And I spent a week with a bunch of high school students from Faith Church up in Canada backpacking and canoeing. And so all the way there, are we there yet, right? Teenagers asking. Then I left from there and I went... To North Carolina for some sun and surf with my family. And again, long road trip. Are we there yet? Are we there yet? And you know the question, are we there yet? Is kind of a stupid question. Like for you to ask that question, you're really dumb. Because if we're there, you'll know it, right? It's like if we're going to McDonald's and we're there yet, you'll know because we're standing outside the Golden Arches. If we're not there yet, why are you asking the question about it? That's kind of dumb. And as a Christ follower, I think we ask the question, are we there yet, because when we come to know Christ, we wonder, okay, what does it look like to have a relationship with Him? How much do I have to grow? Have I grown all that I need? Do I know everything I need to know? Am I experiencing all the intimacy? And there's times that we get bored, times that we check out, times that we wonder, are we there yet? And here's how you'll know you're there. When you see Jesus face to face, you're there. Until then, you're still alive and you're not there yet, which means you're in a lifestyle of growth. Not coasting, not checking out, but how do you dial in and be connected? And so we're talking this summer about different attributes of what it means to follow Christ and not check out on this journey. That on the journey of following Christ, there's going to be ups and there's going to be downs, there's going to be good days, there's going to be bad days, there's going to be times you're going to Do great following Him in times that you're going to fail and fall into temptation. But as a follower of Christ, we believe that as you follow Him, you begin to grow more humble. You begin to grow more hungry for Him and for His Word. There's more joy in your life. There's more generosity in your life. There's more connection to God and to other people in your life. You become more caring and more engaged with the people around you. It's not about coasting. It's, I'm going to be in this until I see Jesus face to face, and then my faith will become sight, and I will have arrived. Until then, I want to grow. And so this summer, we've been looking at different character traits of people throughout the Bible who are growing and following Jesus and learning. And today, we're going to look at a character trait of someone, look at an individual study of a person that's actually a bad role model. We're going to look at a guy, I'm going to call him Disconnected Aiken. And really, if you want to hear the message, it's this, don't be Aiken. Like, don't be like him. Because what you see is that he chooses to be disconnected. When God intended us, designed us to be connected, what does disconnected mean? That my TV is connected to my Apple TV, which is connected to my internet so that I can watch things. If I disconnect my Apple TV from the internet, I can't watch things. The design is that the internet is connected to the Apple TV, it's connected to the TV, so I can veg out and watch the Yankees win. That's the whole point. If I unplug that, if I disconnect that, things aren't gonna work the way they're designed to work. You and me were designed for connection. We're designed to be connected to God vertically and connected to other people horizontally. But we choose. To live disconnected lives for lots of different reasons with lots of different results. But here's what Aiken teaches us today that a disconnected life is where I think my successes and my failures only impact me. This is the lie. God designed me to be connected. So when I succeed, I'm like, yo, I am the dude. I did this. I won this. I earned this. I'm entitled to it. It's mine. And when I fail, it doesn't impact. That's my problem. That's my addiction. That's my sin. That's my issue. What are you involved in this for? But that's a disconnected life. It's exactly the opposite of what the Bible teaches The Bible teaches that, no, my life impacts everyone around me. I'm connected to God and connected with other people, whether I like it or not. And that's what we're going to learn from Achan in Joshua chapter 7. So if you have your Bibles, it's all the way at the beginning. First couple chapters of the Bible, the book of Joshua. Joshua chapter 7. And here out of the gate, I want to tell you, like this is one of those passages of Scripture that you just want to delete. I mean, honestly, like, I'm not really sure why I'm up here preaching this, because this is one of those messy stories that you're like, really? This is the God you serve? Because Achan, this dude, is going to make a boneheaded decision, and it's going to cost him his life, and not just his life, the life of his family, people in his country. And it's one of those passages that people will point to and say, really? You follow a God that when things like this happen from Joshua 7, people just get obliterated. It's one of those megalomaniac passages that people use to say, God isn't loving. He isn't kind. He isn't good. He isn't patient. Because this is a messy story. And if you just zoom into Joshua 7 and miss all of the rest of the Bible, you might be left thinking that about God, but when you see all of who God is in Joshua 7 and the reason Joshua 7 takes place and the rest of the scriptures, what you find is God is merciful and compassionate, but He's serious. He's also holy and just. So the context of Joshua 7, God's chosen a group of people the Jewish people, to be his people. And God says, hey, I'm going to be faithful to you. Will you be faithful to me? And the Jewish people go, yeah, we'll be faithful to you. And they make a covenant, a contract with one another. And God says, if you're faithful to me, I will provide for you in ways, I will protect you in ways you can't even imagine. If you're not faithful to me, I will still be faithful to you, but you are going to deal with the consequences of your decision." I'll be faithful to you, will you be faithful to me, he says to them. And when we open up in Joshua chapter 1, first couple chapters, what we find is God's bringing the people of Israel into their new home, into a new place to live. And it's a kind of an interesting story if you read leading up to Joshua 7. God's like, I'm going to give you this city, Jericho. It's this fortified city. And he says, here's what I want you to do. I just want you to march around it seven times. If you march around it seven times, I'm going to give you the city. And the people, Jewish people are like, okay, it would be like you going, I want a new condo. And God's like, okay, just march around the apartment complex seven times and I'll give it to you. And if you actually listened to God and did it and he gave it to you for free, that'd be pretty awesome, right? Well, that's what he does in Joshua to give them the city of Jericho. And it's this pretty awesome story, Joshua 6, where God gives them this city simply because they listened to his words. He said march, they marched. And they were rewarded, blessed because of that. But now look at Joshua 7, right on the heels of this great victory. Joshua 7, verse 1. But the Israelites were unfaithful in regard to the devoted things. Achan, son of Carmi, the son of Zimri, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things. So dramatic turn here going on in chapter 7. God just handed this people a huge victory, a city, and now in chapter 7 opens up with a giant but. But the Israelites were unfaithful. That word unfaithful is the word that would be used for a husband and wife who make a vow to one another. One of them keeps the vow, and one of them breaks the vow. God says, I've been faithful to you. I will vow to take care of you. I've provided you with this new city. And the people of Israel are now being unfaithful to God. He's upheld his part, and now they're not doing their part. The prime example is this dude, Achan, who stole some stuff. See, back in Joshua chapter 6, when they're marching around the city and they get the city handed to them, God says to their leader, Joshua, hey, listen, all the loot, all the bounty, all the goods within the city of Jericho belongs to God. He's the one who win this, won this for them. So everything inside the walls, it's God's. Don't touch it. Commands that clearly. Well, Achan decides he's going to do a five-finger discount. He's looking around going, hey, nobody sees, so I'm going to take this robe, I'm going to take this gold, I'm going to take this silver, I'm going to sell it into my pocket, and nobody will see. No worries, no big deal. But God sees this. And look at the results at the end of verse 1. It says, so... As a result of this stealing, the Lord's anger burned against Israel. I mean, just look at that phrase for a minute. So, the Lord's anger burned against Israel. Can you imagine if you were the subject of that? So, the Lord's anger burned against Joe Hensler. So, the Lord's anger burned against the United States of America. I mean, that's a kind of scary phrase. What does it mean? It doesn't mean that God needs an anger management class. This doesn't mean that God, like, threw a temper tantrum and started tossing people around heaven. That's not what it means. It actually means that God's nostrils flared. He's looking at His people. I just gave you a new home. I just gave you this great victory. I've been faithful to you. I've provided for you. And now, you're going to steal from me? And it causes his nostrils to flare. Instead of Achan being satisfied with all that God had given him, Achan goes, I want some of that. I need more. It's worth stopping and stating for a moment that, that God only gets angry. His nostrils only flare at one thing. It's sin. God hates sin. God hates when he says, here's how I want you to live. Don't touch. Don't do this. Don't act like that. And we willfully decide to do the exact opposite of what he commands. That's called sin. It's self-centered. It's self-focused. And God hates it. It's an offense to him. It's kind of like We hate cancer, right, as humans? You hear people say, I hate cancer. Like, you don't just tolerate cancer. You don't put up with cancer. You don't kind of look the other way when it comes to cancer. We hate cancer. And that means we do everything possible to find any little cancer cell and eradicate it. Because we know that if we don't eradicate a little cell of cancer, it will metastasize to the rest of the body and take the whole body down. That's how God looks at sin. that when as humans, we choose to disregard him, disobey Him, not listen to him, not follow him, he hates it, because He knows what that will do to our entire body. He knows that what that will do to the entire family of God, because no sin is private. The things that Achan did will bring consequences on his entire family. So up to this point, the only ones who know about this little five-finger discount is Achan and God. So Joshua goes, all right, we got this one city, Jericho. We need to get the next city. And he decides to send some spies up to the next city. This is found in Joshua 7. He sends some spies up there. Now, picture this. The Jewish people have an army that's like 600,000 soldiers, and they go up, they send some spies up to see the next city, and they're like, we got this next city. We don't need to bring all our troops. Let's just bring 3,000 of our troops up to this next city, and we'll kill it. No problem. We got this. Well, they bring 3,000 troops up, and they get their butts kicked, and they come running back like wah, 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 all the way home, and they get back there. And Joshua responds to this. They just won this great city. God did it. Now they just got their butts handed to them. And look at what Joshua says in verse 6. Joshua tore his clothes and fell face down to the ground before the ark of the Lord, remaining there till evening. The elders of Israel did the same and sprinkled dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, sovereign Lord, why did you ever bring this people across the Jordan To deliver us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us. If only we'd been content to stay on the other side of the Jordan. Pardon your servant, Lord. What can I say now that Israel has been routed by its enemies? The Canaanites and the other people of the country will hear about this, and they will surround us and wipe out our name from the earth. What then will you do for your great name? I mean, honestly, Joshua's having a little pity party right here. He's a little whiny. He's having a little temper tantrum before God. Like, God, we lost. Yeah. And if you look at verse 10, the Lord said to Joshua, stand up, you idiot. What are you doing, you wuss, with your face down? I mean, that's my translation, but stand up. What are you doing down on your face? He says to him, God says, Israel has sinned. They have violated my covenant, which I commanded them to keep. They have taken some of the devoted things they have stolen, they have lied, they have put them with their own possessions. This is why Israelites cannot stand against their enemies. It's interesting. In this moment, God holds everyone accountable for what Achan did by stealing. And you might go, well, that's so unfair, right? How could God do that? But follow the whole train of what's going on in Joshua 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7. God hands this family an entire city, and they do nothing but listen to his voice. They're assigned to go get the next city. They don't stop and say, God, how should we do this? What should we do? How should we handle this? They just decide in their own strength, we're too good for this. Let's just throw up 3,000 troops, and they get smacked down. Then Joshua starts whining, yeah, we feel so bad. We just had this great victory. and well, Look what happens now. He's crying. He's sniveling. And God's like, Ann, someone in your midst stole. They stole from me. And God says, you can't stand against your enemies until this changes. You see, Israel, the entire group of them was unfaithful, all of them dishonoring God, all of them ignoring God, all of them being a part of robbing God. He looks at the collective and sees, hey, is there anyone in this group that's seeking to honor me, listen to me, submit to me, follow me? And he says, you can't stand against your enemies until something changes. He's diagnosing the whole group. And he instructs Joshua. He says, assemble everyone, get everyone together, tell them what they've done wrong, and here's what I'm gonna do, Joshua. I'm gonna point out to you the person who stole from me. I'm gonna show you. So Joshua has this big family meeting, gathers everybody together, says, Here's the deal. The reason we got our butts kicked up there is because we didn't seek and honor God and because somebody stole from God. I'm gonna give you all a chance to fess up, because if you don't, by tomorrow, we're going person by person, tribe by tribe, until we zero in on who did this. Next morning, they get up, they go tribe by tribe, they get to Achan's tribe, they get to Achan's family. Then they get to Achan, and Achan's standing right in front of Joshua, and God's like, he's the one. Joshua seven nineteen. Then Joshua said to Achan, my son, give glory to the Lord, the God of Israel, and honor him. Tell me, what have you done? Do not hide it from me. Achan replied, it is true. I have sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel. This is what I have done. When I saw in the plunder a beautiful robe from Babylonia, 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, I coveted them and took them. They're hidden in the ground inside my tent with the silver underneath. So Joshua sent messengers and they ran to the tent and there it was, hidden in his tent with the silver underneath. They took the things from the tent, brought them to Joshua And all the Israelites, and spread them out before the Lord. Then Joshua, together with all of Israel, took Achan, son of Zerah, the silver, the robe, the gold bars, his sons, his daughters, his cattle, his donkeys, his sheep, his tent, and all he had, took them to the valley of Achor. And Joshua said, why have you brought this trouble on us? The Lord will bring trouble on you today. Then all of Israel stoned Achan. And after they had stoned the rest, they burned them. It's one of these stories that just makes you go, really? Like, what? Seriously? This is the Bible? This is God? Are you kidding me? And if you just look at this one passage and you miss all of the rest of the Bible, you might be tempted to wonder about who God is and His character But I think with humility, if you look at everything that's going on in this chapter and the rest of the context, you go, wow, there's something here I can learn about myself and about God, and here's the biggest deal. See, in our culture, in our times, we don't want to talk about sin. We don't want to talk about rebellion against God. We don't want to deal with the fact that he's holy and just and perfect, and every one of us is imperfect, messed up sinners. But what this teaches me, this story, is that sin disconnects us from God And it has to be paid for. Like, his decisions in this moment, he knew the right thing to do. He willfully disregarded God's commands, and that's sin. That's rebellion against the Creator. I find verse 21 fascinating, so I put it in your app and highlighted a couple words underlined. Because I think verse 21 kind of shows us the way sin works in all of our lives. Because I'm no different than Achan. Neither of you. Neither are you. And so what, verse 21, it kind of shows us how sin often works. Achan says, when I saw the plunder of the beautiful robes, when I I saw the 200 shekels of silver, when I saw the bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, in his mind, he's hearing God said, don't touch it. I commanded you clearly, don't touch it. Don't do that. He's hearing that in his mind, but his eyes are seeing, wow, look at that hot robe. Look at that that silver. Look at that gold. And as I see it, and it says, then my heart coveted them. I lusted after that. I felt entitled to that. I felt like I could dream about that, and I'm going to dream about it, and I don't really care what God says. I'm going to covet it, want it, lust after it, dream about it, feel entitled. And then he took them. As I saw it, he lusted, wanted it. He took it, and then he says, then I hid the things I took in the ground. I mean, this is the way sin works for all of us. If you're a follower of Jesus, you know his commands. You've learned some of the right and wrong of what it means to honor. God makes it clear to you, but your mind starts to wander and go, I feel like I want that. I'm seeking after that. I would like that. And then your actions start to follow, and then you hide. So I either want want this pornography, I want this possession, I want this power, I want this person, I want these things, and it doesn't really matter what God said, I'm going to do what I want. I'm going to get what I want, and then I'm going to live in hiding, in darkness, in secret. This is how sin works, it works this way in my life. It works this way in your life, and what it does is it disconnects me from God. He told me something, I'm ignoring it, and now I'm disconnected from him because God sees everything. I can't hide from him. Achan thought he did a good deal, you know, burying that thing under his tent, nobody sees it, it's all good. God sees and knows Achan's heart, and this disconnects him from God. And God loves me way too much. God loved Achan way too much to let his sin stay hidden. Somebody had to pay. God's righteousness and justice is too much. He can't just look the other way. He can't just go, oh, I forgot, I didn't see it. It's like a cancer. He knows, God knows that if that cancer is let to live, it will metastasize and kill the rest of the body. So God and his love and his righteousness, his mercy, his justice calls Aiken out and says, this has to stop, because if he doesn't, the family of God will have to deal with the consequences of his decisions. God roots out the sin. It must be paid for. And that's bad news. I mean, my sin, your sin, we're all rebels, and it must be paid for. He can't look the other way and pretend like he didn't see your rebellion. You willfully deliberately run against his commands. I run against his commands, and God doesn't go, oh, I didn't see that. That's kind of cute. What a nice little sin. I'll tolerate it. No. It has to be paid for. That's the bad news. Here's the good news. Jesus paid it, right? So thousands of years after Achan, in this moment, Jesus, the Son of God, shows up on planet Earth to bear on his shoulders the wrath of God that you and me deserve so that I don't have to fear God's angry wrath. His hatred of sin was poured out on Christ, and now when I realize I'm a sinner, I'm a rebel, I blow off God's commands. When I see that and I realize that and I run to Jesus, Jesus shelters me and gives me new life, and I can be restored. The disconnection that I experienced because of my sin was poured out on Jesus so that now I can be reconnected, reconciled to the God of the universe, and live a life of forgiveness and peace forevermore. I mean, this is good news. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Nothing can separate us from his love. That's incredible. But here's the deal. Though my sin is paid for by Jesus on the cross, as a follower of Jesus, I still sin. I still make bone-headed decisions, and my sin, even though it's forgiven because of Christ, my sin still disconnects me from others. It still causes problems in relationships. It still radically impacts negatively other people. It's true for you and me. Yes, I am forgiven in Christ, but it doesn't change the fact that decisions I make that are sinful are negatively impacting other people. So when I choose to gossip and slander about you and how stupid you are, I could say to God, God forgive me, and God does forgive me, but I still slandered your reputation. Other people heard me and that trickle effect into other people's lives still hurt people. When I act out my sexual feelings, when I live out my sexual desires that are outside of marriage between one man and one woman, when I play that out, when I act that out in my head or in my heart, my hands, when I do that, God forgives my sexual sin, but it still radically hurts and impacts relationships around me. If I steal from you, God will forgive me, but I still stole from you. When I do the good kind of stealing from the government, and I get away with it, God sees everything and knows you. And it still impacts people around you. When you're a person in power, when you have authority in your home or at work or in your organization, and you leverage that authority to beat people down, God forgives your power play. But it still radically impacts people. The porn that you don't want to talk about and you're hiding, the illicit things that you're doing that nobody else knows about, you think you've covered up and buried under your tent, still impacts. If I choose today to go out and get drunk, God forgives my drunkenness, but my family will deal with the consequences of my drunkenness. If I abuse my wife, oh, God will forgive me. But the danger and the pain that that's caused on her for a lifetime isn't overlooked. It has real consequences. When good people like you and me turn the other way, when we see systemic injustice, when things that are wrong and we don't call it out as wrong, God forgives our silence. But it still radically leaves people in oppression. We can't have private sin. There's no such thing, no such thing as personal sin that's just between you and God. It disconnects you from Him, He forgives, but it radically influences other people. Here's the good news, here's the good news. See, when I live a connected life with God, this, when this vertical life is right, that gives me the best opportunity to live a right life horizontally. So if I get myself right between me and God and say, God, you made me, you know me, you own me, you forgive me for my sin. When I live that right, then I start to live this right. If I can get this right, God, help me. God, let me walk with you. Cleanse me, forgive me, change me. I've tried to hide from you, but there's no hiding from you. I will walk with you. When there is peace this way, that begins to breed peace this way. So just a question for you, I mean, maybe you're lonely today, maybe you feel disconnected from other people, and this isn't true all the time, but maybe is it possible that your disconnection from other people isn't a horizontal problem, maybe it's a vertical problem? Maybe you're so lonely and feel disconnected because you're being drawn into a relationship with Almighty God, and as you join the family of God and stop living and hiding this way, you'll breed opportunity and intimacy this way. Or maybe, just ask yourself the diagnostic question, you know, maybe you're whining and complaining because of how hard your job is. Oh, there's so much crap in your corporate culture and your boss and your this and you're that. Whine, 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 whine. Or people in your family, your wife, your kids, wine, 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 wine. Extended family, aunts and uncles, coworkers, neighbors, wine, 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 wine. Have you ever stopped to actually ask yourself, maybe I'm the problem? Maybe the reason there's tension and drama in your family is because of you. Maybe you're hiding. Maybe you're pursuing sinful activity. Maybe the problem, the diagnosis, isn't everybody else. It's not the church's fault. It's not the work fault. It's not the relationship fault. The fault is on you. And maybe it's time to stop hiding that under your tent and deal with it between you and God. And what you're going to find is as you get peace here, that's when peace here starts. Not always doesn't mean everything's going to be easy. But if you have peace with Almighty God, he will give you the power to make peace here. And if peace doesn't come right away, it's okay because He's going to walk with you and help you and sustain you. Have you stopped long enough to go, is the issue between me and Him, am I the problem? Because as you look at yourself in the mirror and you see that, you can stop hiding and run to Jesus. That's why we invite you to things like prayer and praise because it's so easy to live disconnected lives But when we pray together and we praise together, we get connected together and connected to God. It's how he designed us. So come and join us this Tuesday night. Last thing I'll say, and probably the thing that represents almost everything from this passage, we can't get away from this, that every attitude and action we have as humans impacts this relationship and impacts these relationships. There's no getting away from it. Stop fighting it everything you do, think, see, touch, everything you do impacts your relationship this way with God and impacts your relationship this way. So, as followers of Jesus Christ, if you're a son or daughter of the King, why wouldn't you want to live at peace with God? Ask Him to search your heart, confess to Him, and watch what will happen. Let's pray. God, you're incredibly patient with us you love us with an everlasting love and granted us favor with you because of Jesus, only Jesus. So, through Christ, we can be forgiven and we don't have to fear your wrath. God, please help us to look at our own hearts and see ways we're falling short, ways we're disregarding you, ways we're disobeying you. Bring those things to light so that we can confess them to you. Bring those things to light so that we can live at peace with you. And as we live at peace with you, would you help us to live with peace, at peace with all men and all women around us? Thank you for being patient with us and walking this journey with us. Remind us that we're not alone. And as your sons and daughters, we have your spirit to help us pray this through Christ our Lord. Amen.